Level set testing. Okay. Uh, the biblical approach is this. Let me just, in fact, this is an interesting contrast. We're studying Hebrews 11. I was just talking about the pop approach to discipline. The book here called, for the people listening on the internet, book here called Spiritual Disciplines, and there are 62 of them. We don't, you gotta go buy the book to find out what they are. Um, I've spent too much on heresy lately. I think my heresy budget is... <laughs> I, I've been, in fact, I buy so many heresy books for my research that when I go on Amazon.com, they said, well, you bought, I think you would like it, and it gets a whole list of heresy books. <laughs> so Amazon thinks I'm a heretic. They don't know I'm doing research. <laughs> so I don't know what these 62 are, but I can't imagine, I haven't found 62 practices in the Bible that will make me holy, so I... They obviously didn't come from the Bible. But let's just think this little thing that, that Brian has said at his seminar about the old cult and the new age. I had an experience. It felt good. It must be from God. Now, why is the passage here on discipline in Hebrews 12 the way it is? Because I had an experience. It didn't feel good. But it is from God. Look at this. Let's just read it. Alright? This is the, this is the polar opposite of the other approach. Uh, we did verse 9 last week. <clears throat> no, we didn't finish 10, did we? No, we didn't. But here, okay, let's start with verse 10. We're talking about our fathers disciplining us. For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Now look at verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. So, how would you summarize that? I had an experience. It didn't feel good. But, yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. But it was from God. So, the way you know it's from God isn't that this experience felt good, but you know it's from God because God says it is, and afterwards, it yields a fruit of righteousness. Now, this discipline here... Who's in charge of it? God. What do we how, do? We know best what we need. Who does know best what we need? Okay. So we said that, and as we've been going through Hebrews 12, that in the context, what was happening was that these people had become Christians. Therefore, Jewish people had become Christians, and they'd experienced sufferings. It says that in Hebrews 10. They took joyfully the seizure of their property at one point. okay, And they were willing to uh, be prisoners or go through whatever they had to for their faith. And they were being tempted to apostatize because if they would recant and go away from Christ, they could get out of their suffering. And so what it's saying here is that this suffering that they would like to be alleviated from uh, or get away from, is actually sent by God for their good because He loves them and He's a Father who's disciplining them. So don't back out, don't quit because of the suffering. So God knows what we need. We don't. If we were in charge of our own discipline, I don't know what we'd do. I do. 62 of them. 62 of them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Whatever they are. And they may not feel good either. Maybe maybe one of them is uh, uh, like they did in the medieval, yeah, self-flagellation. Uh, the, the that book that I critiqued in my last article, he said he was talking about these people who used to hang by ch- shackles in the in the monastery trying to get holy, and you know, so that doesn't feel good. But is that what God said? Hang yourself by shackles until you get holy. Exactly. And so, what we need to do is submit ourselves to the Lord and He's in charge of it. We don't go looking for suffering. We don't beat ourselves up and sleep on a slab of granite. We just go about life uh, the best we can, uh, trusting God and uh, uh, living by God's grace and obedience. And what He brings, He brings. Yes, Mike. Uh, I thought one of the issues in the Friday was that you were saying that you know, we submit to the authority of God. So God sets the rules and boundaries. And I thought the other argument was that, well, no, we don't, you know, 
know, uh, we're in a uh, partnership with God, uh, kind of a negotiated thing where we're also creating with God. Uh, co-recreating. That's what it says in his book. Yeah, co-recreating. He didn't understand that we receive everything from God. Amen. Even when we're obedient, even when we're uh, doing the Lord's work, these are gifts of grace to Amen. us. We don't bring anything to the table except our corruption. And, and uh, he, he made it sound like, no, this is a, a partnership where, you know, I'm bringing something to the table. I have something to offer. And so uh, then God and I will enter into this thing, and the potential is, is uh, yeah. you know, whatever. Co- the co-recreating and we're, our, our be using our creativity builds the kingdom, it says. Well, I think that's ultimately what all religion's about, is man's works, right? Amen. And this, the doctrine of sin is an offense. In fact, I have a book called Offense to Reason, which is about the doctrine of sin and the fall. And it was written by a guy that really isn't that conservative, Bernard Ram, but it was an interesting uh, discussion of the history of the you know people discussing the doctrine of sin. But it's offensive because it's telling us we have nothing. We're worthless sinners. Amen. And we don't even have an inclination to come to God on his terms unless God does a work of grace through his Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay? And then having been redeemed is still God. Amen. Galatians says, are you so foolish that you begin in the Spirit and then you're perfected by the flesh? Imply the answer. Uh, if you believe that, you are foolish. Yes. In one of Paget's books, in that quote, he says, "We are worthy of redemption." That's what he says, and that's a quote out of his book. Yeah, we are worthy of redemption. But as Paul's, he's worthy. We're not. Karen. Yeah, it was disturbing too because when I was speaking to him afterwards concerning judgment, uh, he made the comment that. Well, the reason why we need to be saved is so that we don't become casualties of our sins. When God judges our sin at the last day, we don't want to become casualties of it. So instead of being responsible for our sin, we're victims of it. Casualties. Okay, um, by the way, somebody uh, walked off with our mic, the one that we were passing around, and a number of people said they like, yeah, we were accusing you, Keith. <laughs> Bring that thing back. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, be, people say they like it better without. But that means I need something from you. I need everybody to speak as loudly and clearly as possible because we have a significant number of people that email us that actually participate in this class via the Internet, and they like to hear your comments. And so what I have to do now, because we don't have that mic, is I have to take and cool at a pro and blow up what you say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll give Dan a direct link to everybody. They can, they can probably hear him wherever they are. They don't have to. <laughs> so anyhow, if you if you the louder you speak up, the better it sounds when I blow it up for the people on the internet to hear what you said. And then if I'm answering a question, they know what the question was. Yes, Brian. I'll quote: We can create whatever we want in life because we're each co-creating with the energy of God, the energy that makes up the universe itself. Shirley McLean. That's Shirley McLean. You know what? You've got to do, let's do that. Brian has this great idea, and we've got to do a seminar and, and, and execute it. He was going to do a little contest, and he was going to quote Christians and quote New Agers, and then the contest was, guess, guess which was the New Ager? <laughs> <laughs> which one's the Christian? Which one's the New Ager? I didn't realize till the seminar that he used that word co-creating with God. Co-recreating. Co-recreating. There's a we in there. That's the whole difference. Well, there's not much of a difference, but but that is a New Age concept. That's what they believe. That we believe that we are participating in the creation with God. Which, yeah, that's exactly what it says in in this book. That is New Age 101. I was really shocked that he would promote. Well, we've got to we've got to do something. We'll, we'll we'll have some fun with that. I still want to see you do that. Which one's the New Age or which one's the Christian? And you wouldn't be able to tell. You wouldn't be able to tell because they're. Yeah. But uh, so 
somehow we've got to have a message that's distinctively Christian, and we're not going to get it by echoing the world. Yes, Dan. Well, participating with God in the flesh was started with Peter. I won't deny you, Lord. And he did. Elijah says he ran from Jezebel. He was the big tough man, but he ran from Jezebel and was hiding in the flesh. He was so powerful and wanted to die. Jonah one ran from God. His little plant died that shade him. He says, I want to die. So all these great men, and Moses is kind of speaking to the rock, hit the rock. So all these great men, what have they done in the flesh? Deny God, disobey God, complain they want to die. So what have they done? They realize that they can't do anything. These great men of God, unless it's done in the flesh, and neither in the spirit, and neither can we. All right. All right, I'm going to preach on that today, Dan. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, in my sermon, I'm going to just do four verses in Luke, and then I'm going to do a survey. I decided that after having, it took me three years to preach through Matthew, and then I told you how all the themes in Matthew come together at the end. So in Luke, I'm going to tell you how the themes come together in Luke Acts before because I think it's going to take 10 years to get through that, and we, the rapture may happen, and we'll never find out how the themes work. <laughs> so, um, but that's one of the themes in Luke-Acts. The Holy Spirit comes upon someone, and they speak God's words and do God's deeds. Amen. That's a theme, and I'll show you that all the way from Luke 1 to all the way into Acts. Yes. Well, I'm just wondering uh, how much we can interact when it seems like they don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture or that it's authoritative. It's more of a community member is what... Um... Yeah, it, see what it, the idea is, um, and this is postmodern. What's that? Yeah, he said that. Yeah, the, the, that's the idea. But the idea is that the idea of absolute truth is out. Notice he didn't want any adjectives. Truth. What is truth? Well, see, you usually use adjectives is because people have different conceptions of truth, so you try to distinguish between them. All right? And so when we say propositional truth, we mean something specific. That means something that can be judged to be true or false. And, uh, and when you just say truth, and then you're like, Pilate, what is truth? I'm not sure what, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Okay? Now, the, the postmodern idea, is that you don't learn cognitively spiritual things. You learn experientially. And the experience is shared within a community. And so our shared religious community experience is what brings meaning. And this meaning doesn't have to be able to be expressed with words. So what I was doing was saying, well, you have to draw boundaries. God's drawn boundaries, and they're drawn with words. That's why I had those verses we handed out. What did it say? Jesus said, the words that I spoke to you will be your judge in the last day. That means whether you're on the wrong side of judgment or not depends on where you're at with these words spoke by Jesus. Well, so I know they weren't going to like that because that's just flying in the face of what they're saying. Is that, oh no, it's not words, it's an experience. But the words define the boundaries. And so that's why, if, if you didn't catch what was going on, that's what the issue was, yes. And what, what was... Stated from the other side is I try to make a concept sufficiently vague so a word can have multiple meanings so that you and I agree on the words that are sufficiently vague. And when you try to understand, you said you're a friend of mine. Well, when I make a friendship or have a relationship with my wife or somebody else, the whole concept of friendship is to take something vague and clarify it so I understand you better and better. If I made a friend of you and you got more and more vague as we got closer, you're going the opposite direction. And that's exactly that's very good analogy. Taking, uh, a truth and trying to obscure it more and more. The more vague it is, the less relationship. Yeah, and the more obscure it is, the more people agree, the better we are. <laughs> and I was, I was just doing every no-no in the world. Yes. Yeah. Would you uh, comment on his, his one of his rebuttals on this was the, the, uh, Peter's experience on the rooftop? Exactly. So it, yeah. The, Okay, the rebuttal of it was Peter had experience on the rooftop. The implication that he wanted to bring out was that we never know what we're going to believe tomorrow until we have an experience. So in other words, Peter didn't know God wanted to save Gentiles. He had an experience. Then he knew God wanted to save Gentiles. And so the implication would be 
we have no idea what we're going to believe five years ago from now or ten years from now because we haven't had the experience yet. So we just have to continue to have experience. And as we have an experience, we will end up with beliefs, and but we don't know what they'll be. And my, my response back was, no, Peter's experience wasn't just undefined because Jesus had already taught from authoritative Scripture that God was going to save Gentiles. Amen. So the experience was to get Peter to believe what had already been taught in the Scripture. Because if he didn't have the teaching that God was going to save Gentiles, and in fact, if the Scripture says God will not save Gentiles, which it doesn't, then Peter's experience wouldn't have been valid. But, but Peter's experience did open his eyes to the Word. Right, but if you don't have the Word, the experience is meaningless. Okay? And, and, and here's another way it doesn't work, and I didn't have time to get into every... It was just so fluffy, but... Um, the other, the other thing is, where I would disagree is that the, Peter's experience informs us because it's in the Bible, so now that all people from there on after will know God's going to save Gentiles. And so it's not analogous to assume that I'll have some experience beyond the Scripture that will give me truth beyond the Scripture. Because that was a, a, a God-ordained one-time experience, and the whole church, I'm going to preach on that this morning too, the whole church agreed that God is going to save Gentiles and has been established once for all. So I can't expect that I'm going to go out and have another experience that's going to somehow overturn the Scripture. Like another resurrection. You don't need another yeah, yeah, it's all been said once for all, delivered to the saints. So again, there, the analogy breaks down. Do you, do you see what I mean? All right, we better get in. You know, I bet you they're sitting at their church right now saying, those narrow-minded people over there, I mean, they got to be debriefing too a little bit. And I bet you they're saying, what was with that pastor? He thinks he has all the answers. Have you have you heard that? You know, That's okay, they can say that. No, I don't think I have all the answers. I just think I have the ones God chose to reveal. Yeah, enough of them to, to keep me out of trouble for most days. I know where to go look for them, yes. You know, I, I did see that. Um, yeah. Um, what, is Nick here, by the way, Mike? Uh, okay, I'm answering because Nick made a point that's really good. Is throughout all that he was being said, at the ends of it all, there is no cross. There is no Christ. Therefore, you got to save yourself for the most part because we're all really good people. And because and he, he said that judgment was happening now. If judgment was happening now, we'd be dropping over really quick. Yeah, and you know what? And then he then he went on. See what he would do. He made a statement like that that I would have that I wanted to whack him for. Uh, Keith, that's your term, but, but you know, come back on. <laughs> he says that all the time, and now I'm doing it. <laughs> anyhow, <laughs> anyhow, but then but then he didn't stop. He went on and changed the subject and went all the way down some other bunny trail. Uh, and But that's a perfect one. God is doing judgment now. No, if he is, that's giving a false impression of God because it, it, it's saying through the consequences that happen. But no, God is perfectly just and righteous in his judgment and the consequences aren't meted out according to justice. So you have godly people suffering and you have wicked people prospering in some cases. And if, so if, if we say judgment's what's happening now, the only conclusion we can come to is God's not very good at it. He's not, he's unfair, he's unrighteous. And, uh, no! Judgment is going to be perfectly, fully just and righteous, and that's, it's gonna to happen at the end of the age. And we're storing up wrath, and if God was judging now, there wouldn't be any sinners. Everybody would be in hell that's not a Christian. Yes. Well, I'm yeah. going to say something very offensive to maybe millions of people if there were millions listening. And when I thought as emotional as a Catholic when I went to, when I died, I wanted to be at the communion rail, and then I would receive communion and die and go to heaven. That was emotion. I would went right to hell because Scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. That's the unbloody sacrifice of the Mass. I would have received the unbloody sacrifice that did not cover sins. I would have died and went to hell. But my emotions said, which a billion people out there think when they receive communion, the unbloody sacrifice, and they receive it, they're going to be with Jesus Christ in heaven. It's the biggest lie there ever was. They won't be with the Lord until they come by faith. 
Uh, Dan, so you had the idea then that... I would die at the communion, Ralph, because yeah, I knew you could I know. never get to heaven unless you did all the sacraments. So I want to die right there with the communion in me, drop right on the floor, and I'd be with Jesus. I, but, but the reason you felt that way was because they, of the doctrine that if you the ever doctrine, did it, yes. sin, as soon as you added more sin, right. it, then, then the efficacy... Away from communion, yeah. sin. The first time you had a sinful thought, your salvation yeah. went away again. All right, we're going to do Hebrews right now. <laughs> We gotta be disciplined. <laughs> Hebrews twelve ten. Hebrews twelve ten. This is it. Right here. For they that's our fathers, for our fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Now this is an obvious answer to the question, but I'm gonna ask, why does God discipline us? Yeah, and it says so we might share his holiness. Now, this brings up, let's just talk about the doctrine of holiness. There are two aspects to holiness. Imputed and imparted. Right? Amen. So the imputed holiness, so when the Bible says, calls us saints, to so the saints at Ephesus, that means to the holy ones. The word saint means a holy one. And I met anybody who was a Christian. So anybody who's a Christian has the imputed holiness of God. They are considered holy because they're in Christ. Amen. And you haven't done one thing good. That moment that you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit upon, because through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, as you're regenerated, that moment you are holy in the sight of God and you're called a saint. Amen. That's what it says. All right. Now, um, so then, why do we need to be disciplined to share His holiness if we already had it? Because there is the legal issue, legally declared, the imputed righteousness of Christ. This is a Reformation issue. And then there is the impartation of uh, becoming conformed to the image of Christ that's not completed until the resurrection. Amen. All right? And so, sharing His holiness would be God disciplining us so that we become more like Christ as we go through life. Amen. And, and, and that we more reflect the fact that we're saints because God is changing us. So you have to have both concepts, otherwise there's no way to make sense. Now if you say, if you have a, if you have just the imputed only and you didn't think the other mattered, then you'd be an antinomian. That means against the law. It doesn't matter what you do. And Paul says, may God forbid if we had that idea. And if we had the, the, practical only without the imputed, then you'd be Roman Catholic. You work, 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 trying to, you know, merit the justification, buying the, trying to add to the merits of Christ, and trying to, and, and the doctrine of Rome is, God will never declare someone just unless they really are just. That's Trent. Amen. And Luther said, no, justification's by faith, and God declares us just. Amen. Now that, that's a chasm. That's, that's not, you can't, you can't, historical that's historical Christianity, and it's contradictory. They can't both be true. One's true or the other one, but not both of them. So, here, speaking of the practical, and I think that uh, what Lane thinks, and I, and I agree with him, that this has an eschatological connotation, meaning end times. In other words, that we may share his holiness when we see him. All right, he's working now that we would share his holiness when he returns. It says, um, somebody, let me see if I have it here. No, it's not one of the verses. Uh, Dennis Emery, look up one, I hope I get this right. One John three, I think it's like one, two, and three. <clears throat> That'll express the same concept that we're discussing. One John three, one, two, and three. No. <laughs> I'm sorry, Lois. Oh, I'm sorry. She said, she said, you want me to sing it? I said, no. <laughs> I know it's a song. Okay, one John three. <laughs> See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, but because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, do you see the already and the not yet? Yes. 
we are called the sons of God, the children of God, because we are. But it does not yet appear, well, we shall be, but when we see Him, we'll be like Him. And if we have this hope, we'll purify ourselves. So the idea is, we're called the sons of God, which we are. We want to be like Jesus, which we aren't yet. But because we do have this hope, it it causes us to change now, wanting to be like our Lord. So that's the same idea, this holiness. It's imputed. We're, we're the holy ones, the saints. But we, but our goal is to be holy when we see Him, when He comes, that we'd be like Jesus. And that won't happen until He returns. But the, the gulf between those two, the, the, the legal imputation, the actual total fulfillment, between those two, there's this process of discipline, purifying yourself, Things that, that that God would use to change our lives, and I'm not discounting this. When I write article against the spiritual disciplines, I'm not discounting the need for discipline, but I'm arguing that God determines what it is, not man. Right. Amen. We can't make ourselves holy by some process that we discovered through trying and experimenting. I don't believe that, and uh, we have a lot of church history to prove that it doesn't work. When these things were prominent, we had the Dark Ages, we had the Crusades, we had uh, wickedness in, in yeah, monasteries and, and all this stuff that Luther stood against, and it doesn't work. But God disciplines us, it says, as for our good. Now, it says in our parents, we've been talking about that, so I don't want to get back into that subject. We've had a couple Sundays talking about parents. But, but it's simply to say here, as it seems best to them... It, Nobody's got perfect parents. And then all the children said? <laughs> okay. I said, we've got to have something for the kids here to relate to. <laughs> Nobody's got perfect parents. And which it says, that seems best to them. They probably thought, well, this is the best way. And it's, it's, it's imperfect. It's not exactly how it should be. And some better, some worse. And some don't do much at all. But it seems best to them. But... That's not the good news. The good news is God disciplines us for our good. And being infinitely loving, infinitely holy, infinitely powerful, God himself is overseeing our well-being and our discipline. And he knows things that we need that we wouldn't even think we could possibly need. And we made, it could be, it is different for every child. And take the analogy, not every child's the same in their needs in a real human family, right? Absolutely not. They're not the same. This thing that everybody's got to be the same doesn't always work out so good because one kid might um, need encouragement because they, they're kind of timid and they don't think they can do certain things. And you might have to say, I bet you can do it if you'll just try. And another one's ready to go off the edge of the world and you got to rein them back in. All right? Because they they're foolishly think they can do something that they can't do. All right, so that shows that each kid is somewhat different, and we try to incorporate that into our parenting the best we can. It seems best to us. Likewise with spiritual kids, okay? So God knows one person may need poverty, and another one may need wealth. That that second one is me, by the way. No, <laughs> just in case, in case it's optional. Lord, I think that would really help me. <laughs> I already did the poverty thing. All right, okay, <laughs> Jack. <laughs> I think one of the reasons that we all face, and I think it may be part of the reason that there is so much of this other stuff going on, is that when we embrace salvation and what has been accomplished for us in Christ, we tend to forget that the reason for it is not only for our good, but it's for His glory. Oh, and yeah. He has a purpose that He is to accomplish in setting up His kingdom right. that goes way beyond what we can see. We need to be aware of that, that we don't glom on to our salvation and all that he has given us in a way that says, this is mine. Because you put the eye right back in it. Yeah, it was like earlier in the, in the Hebrews, it says that he's bringing many sons to glory. Um, I believe God is most glorified in the fact that he uh, saves representatives from all the tribes and nations and he sanctifies them and then one day he will gather them to himself and his glory will be on their lips, and he will be glorified by what he did in them. Absolutely. You can read that in Revelation. 
you know. <laughs> so I, I remember when we had Dave Hunt uh, speak here in 86. He had a really good line. He said, um, they were, we were talking about the self-worth doctrine that was going around back then. I guess it's still around. But uh, so there, we had, they had a little debate. Uh, we arranged a pastor's meeting for him, to, and he debated this guy that was uh, a psychologist. And, and they were talking about self-worth. And so, so Dave says, uh, okay, now in, in, when they're singing in heaven, they, they're singing, Thou art worthy. Do you suppose that God's going to sing back in the chorus, and you're worthy too? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think God is going to sing that we're worthy. We're going to sing that he's worthy. That's what Dave told that guy that we used to be. <laughs> Oh, I'm worth so much. God loves me this much. All right. Uh, some passages. I'll start. Uh, I, the reason I keep picking on the front row is you're closer to my mic. All right. So I'm not. <laughs> makes it easier when I fix this for the internet. Well, I'm going to give you. You got the King James, and I'm going to give you one of the Old Testament. So I'll, hopefully we can get this here. Okay. Leviticus 19:2. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, Brian. And Denise, Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. Uh, Linda, Colossians 1, 22. And the other thing is, I know people's names here. <laughs> Mostly. I don't know, I'm sorry, I don't know your name. Verna. Ber- Verna. Verna. Uh, you have Titus 2, 14, Verna. Okay. Nice to have you with us. Your Colossians 1, 22. And Stephan, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. Okay, back over here, Leviticus 19 and verse 2. It says, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Ye shall be holy, because that wasn't bad out of the King James. Sorry, I made fun of your version. That's okay. You're forgiven. (laughs) I'm forgiven, okay. That was a good King James. Ye shall be holy, because I am holy. All right? That's repeated in the New Testament, isn't it? Jesus said that. Right? Okay, so that was told to the people. Now, in the debate, I mentioned, I don't know if people understood what I was saying, but he asked me to describe the Trinity, and I said it's hard to describe because we don't have an analogy, because it's unique to God. Most things that are true about God, there's at least an analogy. All right, It's true that God is love. Well, there's an analogy. We can talk about love in our world. It's true that God has knowledge. He's, he has all knowledge, but we can at least understand it analogically what knowledge is. But there's, but the Trinity itself, if you try to use an analogy, they're all, they're all woefully inadequate. Because it's something unique to God. Now, I'm going to talk about holiness now, alright? And I'll explain what I talked about. I didn't have time to explain it in debate. Um, univocal means that when you, predicate something of some being, if you predicate the same thing of something else of the same order of being, it means exactly the same thing. Now, let me give you an example. This is just a little, no extra charge for learning theology, all right? And, and it's also a linguistic study. If, if, if you have two dogs, Trixie and Fido, and you say, Trixie's obedient and Fido's obedient. That's univocal. Because obedience in the realm of dogs compared to obedience in another dog would be speaking of the same order of being. Okay? Now, if you have a child, Jimmy, and a dog, Fido, and you say, Fido's obedient and Jimmy's obedient. That's not univocal, it's analogical. In other words, there's a, there's a real similarity analogically because an obedient dog analogically is like an obedient son, but they're not the same order of being. Amen. All right? Now when you equivocate, you're using words, the same words with entirely different meanings that don't apply at all. Because they're not even analogically the same. Now let me explain that. I said this. I said this in my book, which we don't have yet, which bothers me. Agreed. Deal. <laughs> but what I, for example, in the book, I, I, I gave an example of equivocation. A pastor that wrote a book called Transitioning says we need to have vision. 
And we need to have vision for our churches. And we need to do vision casting. And you as the leader are the vision caster. And then he goes into the Bible to prove it. And he has seen Nehemiah had his vision. And he's going to rebuild Jerusalem. All right? But he's equivocating. Because there's not even an analogical relationship. Because the vision in the Bible means that God has spoken and told them to rebuild. And the vision came to the prophet. All right, but the way he's using the term vision is in a corporate business sense of a, of a business idea in a man's mind that he gets other people to share, uh, so that they can execute their future plans. All right, Amen. and it's equivocating because it is a, a total different order of beings, and it's not even the same issue and concept. And it fools people because the same word is used. So that's what equivocation means. And uh, you could do this with any kind of word that sounds the same, but it has a totally different meaning. Um, like, the, if just speaking, the word red, you could say you could say somebody had a red blouse and somebody read a book. Now, it's spelled a little different in English, but you're equivocating, because there's nothing in common. Now, what does that have to do with holiness? See, you thought I got off topic, but I really didn't. I was wondering where you were going. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, no, I was thinking about holiness. Now, when, when, because what I just said is how we can understand that passage. When it says, be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord, if we think of that um, univocally, we'd be wrong. In other words, if I think that me being holy is of the same exact nature as God being holy, that'd be idolatry. That'd be false. Because God's a different order of being. It would be like, and I think I said in the debate, it would be like saying I love my wife and I love my dog. If that's equivocal, you're in trouble. <laughs> right? It better be analogical. <laughs> All right? It's not, it's not, uh, I mean, if, that, if that's univocal, you're in trouble. Um, but it is analogical because analogically it's similar. Okay? Um, but when it says God's holy, that, that's uniquely who God is. There's no other holy being in the universe that's holy in the same sense that God is holy. But when it says, you be holy, for I'm holy, what it means is, as a fitting for humans created in God's image, set apart for God, you have holiness. As would be a human type of holiness that's analogically like God's holiness. Now, now, why did I bother to teach you this? Because it's extremely important. Because the new theology is, and that's, and I think that my debate opponent probably thinks this way. I don't know if he's thought it all through. But the new theology says all language about God is equivocation. They deny the validity of the analogical. And this would be like Neo-Orthodoxy, Tillich, Boltman, people like that. And so they say all language about God is meaningless. We can't even know what it means. Because God is so far holy and so beyond us that we don't know what it means. And we're just talking, and our linguistics don't really mean anything. So all we can have is blind faith and experience. Because the words don't communicate because of this equivocation they say. Now, the way you save language from God, about God from that sort of analysis is by analogy. Analogically, it's true that we can be holy as in as much as fitting for humans, and it is related to God's holiness. Did that, if that made sense that I probably helped you a little bit, if it didn't, I'm, I'm sorry. Yes? That's why the Trinity is such a hard concept. Because there's no analogy. It's not true of a human. Yeah, right. So I can't conceive at my level. It's just something that's uniquely God, so we don't have an analogy yeah. to make. That's what I was saying in the debate. All we have are the words of God that describe other things we can't understand, like the Holy Spirit is God, Jesus is God, the Father is God, but the Trinity is, a, is unique in the sense that there's shared essence of, de- of deity, but, you, but separate persons. There's no one thing like that in our universe besides God himself. Yes? Would you say that our imputed holiness or righteousness is equal to God's holiness? No. It's analogically the same, but not equivalent. 
Because God's uniquely holy, because He's a different order of being. Yeah, but if our, if our holiness is in Christ. Yeah, Christ's holiness is the same as God's, but imputed holiness to a human would still not be identical. Because even glorified, let's put it this way, if you think of this, even when it's all said and done, and we, yet appears what we shall be, it's more than we can know now, eye hasn't seen or ear heard what God's prepared for us, but even when it's all done, and we share the holiness of God in a direct, more direct way, and we actually have the image of Christ conformed to it, we still will be different order of being, because deity means that your attributes are, um, well, there's a word, there's a technical word, a seity, and that's that's not going to help. Um, it means that uh, they're not contingent on anything outside of themselves. So, Jesus to be God is God from all eternity. He didn't become God, all right. And for Jesus to be loving, He's loving from all eternity because it's His nature. For Him to be holy, He's holy from all eternity because it's His nature. So even when we have the most holiness we'll ever have in glory, we still will have gotten it from somewhere. Yeah, we're still not God, but but Jesus will be uniquely holy because he always has been from all eternity. So there's it's still analogical, not you uh, univocal, univocal is what it's spelled like. Yes, but he was talking about you know we we can't know anything about God, but God in His infinite wisdom sent His Son to become a man. So that we can understand so much more because this man, uh, the second person uh, in, the, in the Godhead, walked among us mm-hmm. and spoke to us. And uh, if you're looking for concrete stuff, uh, this is about as concrete as, as, you can, as you can get. The words and the, and the actual fact of the incarnation. Yes. Right. And, and that's what, you know... Uh, and there are, there are some analogies. I mean, there is a relationship between a father and son that we all can relate to. And, and there, there's this idea of obedience and authority that we all can relate to. And then we have the actual person of Christ walking among us that is, you know, and, and John refers to Christ, this person, as the Word. Uh, in other words, uh, to this date, the greatest revelation, the greatest manifestation of God before us, evidence of himself. And, you know, it, it's such a, a great um, act by God, it coming to meet us where we are uh, with, with a man in, in, in the, the same flesh as us, who suffered the same things as us. And who is made perfect in his suffering, perfectly redeems us. Um, That's the greatest there is. Right. And, and, if we, and if we neglect that, it says, well, what shall happen? We neglect so great a salvation because we're interested in something else. Tyler. I was just going to say, he sounds like he's right on the dot because he's summarizing like the first several chapters of Hebrews. The very first thing that he was saying that this is the way that God spoke. Yeah, that's what Hebrews is about. He has spoken to us in His Son, all right. And now, and so these these words. Now we're talking about analogy, so we can learn. That's exactly what our verse is. Hebrews twelve ten. Back to the verse. They, our fathers, disciplined as seems best, but He disciplines for our good. It's analogical. See, God's a different order of being, so His so also His discipline is of a different order. But analogically, it's like what our fathers did. So we can understand it. So we have to have that to be able to understand God. Now, here's the other thing we need to know. And it's very important in theology. God chooses the analogy. If we're going to think of an analogy to say what God's like out of our own imagination, we will probably misrepresent God. So the people say words are inadequate, which is what we were discussing last night, are denying that God can choose words that he deems adequate to analogically reveal to us what he's like. And if God chooses the words, then we're learning what we're supposed to learn. God chose these words to say that he disciplines us like a father so we can know what he means. And he knows perfectly what we need. And as I said in my article about this, 
we don't all need exactly the same thing. So these people are saying, well, I'm going to be holy, so I'm going to choose solitude. I'm going to do a voluntary banishment to the wilderness in order to achieve holiness. Say, well, how do you know that's what you need? All right? Now, I would say if somebody said, I choose to go to the wilderness because I like to be there, and while I'm there, I'm going to pray, I'd say that's well within your Christian liberty to do so. But if you say, me banning myself to the wilderness is going to achieve a greater degree of holiness because I uh, decided that it will, without God's word commanding that or promising us holiness for doing that, then you are transgressing a boundary. You're claiming uh, that you know how to achieve holiness by your actions when God is the one who disciplines us for our holiness. Now, as I said in my article, maybe we really do need solitude. So the only job you can find is being a night watchman in an empty building. Providentially. Well, there you go. you got your solitude. But, um, like I said, you don't know. All right, let's get these other verses in now. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you should be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall heed my ordinances and do them. Amen. That's Ezekiel 36. And isn't that, that's, that's describing regeneration. And he does it all. Yeah. God does it all, doesn't he? I will put my spirit within you. I will sprinkle you and you'll be clean. I will give you a heart of flesh and take out the heart of soul. And this is something God, that's a promise to Israel, by the way. But, you know, uh, those who come to God in faith, have, everyone who's regenerated has this experience. It's something God does. It's not that we, we couldn't do that. We can't cleanse our own hearts. We can't change our own nature. We can't, we can't, uh, cause us to walk, ourselves to walk in His ways. Only God can do that. Okay, Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. That He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the Word. That He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Wow. So the future of the church is that we'd be the bride of Christ, holy and without blemish. Amen. When's that going to happen? When Christ returns. <laughs> when Christ returns or when or the rapture, when we're with Him, when we're gathered together for the wedding supper of the Lamb, whenever the timing of that. I think that happens actually at the end of the tribulation. I heard people say it happens during the tribulation. Uh, I, uh, I, don't, I, I don't believe that myself because that way... If that was true, then the people martyred at the very end of the of the tribulation wouldn't even be participating. So I think it happens at the end when they're all everyone's gathered. Okay, the next verse here was uh, Colossians one twenty two. He has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. To present you holy and blameless, blameless and above reproach in his sight. Why? Because we've been reconciled through his blood. Okay, and then um, the next one was Titus 2.14. Was that it? Yep. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Purify and and and. Redeem us so that we might be zealous for good works. We'll be special people, zealous for good works. Colossians 2.14, or Titus 2.14, and 1 Peter 1.15 and 16. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Okay, you shall be holy. That's the quoting the one that you read. All right, from that was, so 1 Peter one sixteen is the citation of Leviticus 19.2. Now, the application that Peter made was for us to behave in a way that would indicate that we share this holiness. 
Okay, so it's practical, um, life-changing things that Peter's talking about. So because you're called holy and made holy by redemption, behave in a holy way, and so thereby show that you hope to be like Jesus when He returns. And to live in that holy way would be to obey the Word. Obey the Word. And if you're not in the Word, there is nothing to obey. Then you get everything else. Right. And not only that, not only does the Word give us the parameters of what it looks like to obey God and what we need to do, because it's told us, but the Word itself... Now, remember we had a discussion about what it means that it's living? When I say... When I interpret that, the Word is living, what I interpret it means is that it's a means of grace. That the Word believed has the power to change our lives. But it also means what it says, and it gives us the guidance. This is what you're supposed to do, but it also gives you the power in the doing to be graciously changed. Now, the other way, now this would be an example of equivocation that we were just talking about. The other way of saying the word is living would be like the liberals with the Constitution. It's living in the sense of morphing. It means different things to different people depending on our situation. Uh, and so rather than living in the sense of giving us power, it's living in the sense of changing, uh, it's evolving, it could mean a lot of different things to different people, because living things change. But the Lord says, I, the Lord, change not. And His Word is given once for all. It is changeless. Yes? Um, I don't know if this is a good analogy, but bring a Bible out on the uh, streets where a lot of corruption is happening, and you'll see it living because people will really get mad at you for that. <laughs> and it, it causes a reaction. You can pretty much bring any other book with you, and you don't get that reaction. Yeah. It, it divides asunder, and it's powerful. I was going to cite Lane. i got two minutes. I'll see what he says on page 424. Here's what uh, William Lane, he's a fabulous, fabulous Bible scholar. He is discussing this discipline of the Lord. The much greater degree of respect owed to God as Father makes submission to the imposition of divine discipline all the more necessary than was true in the case of ordinary parental discipline. The designation of the uh, God as Father of Spirits reflects the influence of Septuagint. We talked about that last week where he's called that. Um, the Father of Spirits is the transcendent God to whom the heavenly world is also subject. As the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, God's right to discipline us and demand our devotion proceeds from the highest authority. Then he goes on to say, there's a margin of uncertainty in all human training. Parental discipline originated often, is originated often in anger. At times it's unjust. Furthermore, it was imposed for a short time. In contradistinction to this, God's parental discipline is determined by his perfect wisdom and is motivated by an intrinsic concern for our welfare. The man who accepts the discipline at the hand of God as something designed by his heavenly Father for his good will cease to feel resentful and rebellious. He has stilled and quieted his soul, which thus provides fertile soil for the cultivation of the righteous life. <laughs> so that's what uh, we want to do. Uh, rather than getting angry at whatever the Lord dishes out that's his discipline for us, which is found in the circumstances and sufferings of life, we should quiet our soul and say, Lord, I know you, you mean the best for me, you love me, and this is going to be for my best if I accept it as your mere hand. And by so doing, we grow in holiness. So there is some wisdom from the first century <laughs> uh, for us to take with us today. And uh, we'll have a half hour. Oh, I've been asked to do something.